This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at organizing for innovation. Why corporate innovation is fundamentally broken on a number of levels. What you can do to fix that within your own company. And what a typical innovation team should look like. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is David J. Bland. David is a principal at NEO a full-stack innovation consulting firm where he advises corporations and startups alike. David helps organizations large and small innovate on how they create and deliver value to their customers. Prior to NEO, David was a pioneer in lean startup and innovation services at Big Visible, where he worked with Fortune 500 companies to establish entrepreneurial teams within huge companies. He worked with lean startup author Eric Reese to start Fastworks at GE and is an author and speaker who helps turn the concepts of lean startup, business model generation, and customer development into actions. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for inviting me. This is good uh, Good to be here. Absolutely. So uh, let's kick things off today talking about why organizing for innovation is such an important topic. You put out a webinar on the NEO website recently where you led with a pretty provocative statement. Corporate innovation is fundamentally broken. Why do you think that's the case? It, it's sad, but it's what I'm observing. Um, you know, I'm out here in San Francisco Bay Area, and even out here, these innovation labs are having a really tough time. Um, over the last six months, I've noticed more just being shut down. Anytime budget cuts come through, the innovation lab is the first to go. And I think why that's happening and why they're on the chopping block that way is so much of how they're funded and how they're staffed and not having a clear, coherent strategy tied to where the company's going basically lends itself to, oh, this is expendable. You know, we're not doing valuable work here. It was more of a PR thing. We tried this. It didn't work. Um, so it's really unfortunate. And I'd like to think that companies are learning from this and pulling the innovation back into the company in a meaningful way. But, you know, time will tell whether or not that plays out. Sure. So... I think it's safe to say a lot of people out there would be curious to know what an innovation team, quote unquote, looks like. You have a lot of experience with innovation teams. When you're working with clients to help them validate ideas through testing, what does a typical team look like? Well, first off, they're small. You know, I think the trend is to take a 20-person team and throw them on something and call it innovation and, you know, give them five to $10 million and have them go build And what I'm seeing instead, which is more impactful, is to take, let's say, a five-person team or even a three-person team. They're typically cross-functional, so you have somebody that's playing almost the CEO with the product vision. You have somebody that can do design work and growth hacking and marketing and acquisition. And you have somebody that can build, right? You have an engineer that can create. 
And basically, this this small team that's outcome focused is really working well for for many of the clients that I work with. So, you know, it's a fraction of the cost. The team's outcome focused. And they don't have to rely on other parts of the organization, such as marketing and legal design. You know, a lot of this stuff in corporations has been kind of pulled back into these centers of excellence, so to speak. And, you know, those people are spread thin across multiple projects. So if you don't have this cross-functional unit that's small and outcome-focused, then what happens is they end up relying on other parts of the organization, which are already spread too thin, and it slows everything down to a crawl. And, you know, you almost have to play catch-up every time you include them again to try to, um, because they're not there along with you every day, and, you know, day in and day out trying to, accomplish, you know, they, they just lose that context. So, um, in short, you know, small cross-functional outcome focused are, are the, the themes I see. And just out of curiosity, which hat of those do you typically wear? Myself, um, so I have a pretty interesting background where I've done, um, product work, I've done design work, I've done coding. Um, but my role is more advising those teams now. Mm-hmm. So here at Neo, we have entrepreneurial, uh, product people, product designers, designers that can do marketing and also agile engineers. And my role is more advising them and making sure our strategy is clear, uh, helping set up the environment where they they can succeed. So my role in that is more at a strategic level. Okay, sure. Uh, so let me ask you about a piece that you wrote on Medium recently about Toyota going, quote unquote, off brand to experiment with an idea that they wanted to test out. And the idea was whether or not people would find it beneficial to pump gas without ever having to leave their car. Can you share a little bit of background on how Toyota promoted and tested the idea and what did they learn from the testing? Sure, yeah. It was a really interesting engagement. I mean, automotive manufacturers in general are starting to be disrupted. The idea of car ownership is changing in America. You have companies like Tesla coming in and building this whole different experience around the car. And I think what we're finding with um, large automotive manufacturers is that, you know, the interaction piece has not been their unfair advantage, for example. You know, the attention you would put on the brakes and the handling um, is not the attention they put into, let's say, the user interface of the car. And I've seen plenty of examples of this over the years. I recently saw a picture of, uh, it was like a, a Ferrari uh, UX, which was the, the head unit inside the car, what you look at above, you know, in the dashboard, and uh, like a minivan. And they looked exactly the same. Like, it's just complete afterthought. So um, now that companies are coming on board and the experience is their unfair advantage, and this idea of, oh, my car can do so many things for me besides just getting me to work, what would those experiences be? And innovation teams typically would say, okay, let's go heads down, let's build all this tech that would be cool for a car experience, and then let's go launch it. Um, and the cycle time on a car is about three years. So that's a big gap, you know, and you have to get it right. And if you don't talk to customers, there's a pretty slim chance you're going to get it right. So uh, Toyota is just one company of going out and testing, well, what would this look like? How would we get out of the building and see how would people interact if their car could do this? And this specific example was interesting because, one, it was, you know, they weren't leading with the Toyota brand. It was more the R&D arm. And two, they were bringing people to gas stations. And they had hacked together an iBeacon at a local Rotten Robbie's uh, down in South Bay. 
And they had people lined up and people would come in and they would sit in the car and they would go through the experience and they would talk about how valuable or how, <laughs> how it wasn't valuable to them. And the learnings were things you couldn't get in a, in a meeting room. You couldn't get just doing internal design reviews. You know, things like women saying, you know, the value to me here is I don't have to take my purse out at night. I feel safer if I could just get out of my car, pump the gas and get back in and not take out my wallet and take out my purse, which is not something you're going to hear in a conference room filled with men, right? Um, the value prop of we thought this would be faster was actually proven false because it wasn't actually that much faster. You still had to get out of the car to pump the gas. Whereas, you know, in Japan, most, um, I think almost every uh, station is full service. So this isn't even a problem Toyota corporate has, right? This is a very U.S.-focused cultural thing. So, um, you know, what they learned was, look, we have to get out of the building. We have to take all this great stuff from Toyota, like Kaizen and Kaikaku and all this great, um, you know, internal continuous improvement type uh, learning but we have to get it out of the building too and we have to go and talk to customers and, and validate things. So, you know, it's just one example of um, an automotive manufacturer saying, look, we see change coming. People are going to have different expectations of, of the car in general and this hasn't been our focus. This isn't our superpower. So how would we start getting ahead of this? Yeah, but, and, and it sounds like you know, it also prevents them from sinking if two or three years is the typical cycle that it takes to get something into the next model of car, it also saves them spending the next two years building a function or a feature that people actually maybe don't care that much about. Yeah. And I mean, pressure is coming from all sides. So not only do you have manufacturers like Tesla coming out, you have people that are plugging into the ODB2 uh, dongle on the car. So they have an ODB2 dongle that they can plug in. They can get the data out of the car and then they could build apps on top of the data. So that's another, you know, you have startups after gunning for car data that car manufacturers should really own and be developing and creating a platform for. You also have, um, you know, the idea of car ownership being disrupted by people like Uber and Lyft, right? You also have the big players like Apple and Google just moving in and actually taking over the car interface. So you essentially have Android for the car or iOS for the car. And, you know, that interface that was also already neglected is now being completely overtaken by third parties. So you either, you know, you either have to step up your game in the experience or you have to partner with them. And, you know, the as much as I love, you know, my iPhone and, and I love mobile, those ideas don't always translate one-to-one -to, -one to a car experience. Like the cognitive overhead for how you navigate, you know, while you're driving is just very, very different. Like you can't be playing Angry Birds on your car while, you know, while you drive. So, um, and a lot of that's lost. Right? Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah, yeah. So it's just really interesting. It's, a, it's a, um, an industry that's being kind of attacked on many, many different fronts. And just the way they've always done things is just not going to cut it for, for getting uh, ahead of this in the future. Sure. So let me ask you about the the build, measure, learn loop. It's something you talk about in a webinar that you recently did that's up on the Neo Innovation website. And you mentioned that 12 weeks is the right timeline for the build, measure, learn loop. So why is three months the right amount of time for an innovation, for an innovation team to experiment with a product idea? 
No, it's it's really interesting question. You know, build, measure, learn comes from lean startup from Eric Ries, and before that, there's a lot of similar like loops um, through military history and through business strategy. However, you know what you need to start with in this loop is what do you need to learn. So if you start with that, not what, what not what do you need to build, but what do you need to learn, then that changes the whole. It, it like turns it on its head basically. So what do I need to learn about the market? What do I need to learn about the customer? What do I need to learn about the tech? Like there are things I need to learn, and then what would I need to measure to learn that? And then do I need to build to measure to learn that? So I think the the common trap here is people think they need to start with build, but you may find out that you already have what you need, and you just need to actually take for some data science at it. Um, I choose three months, and my thinking is always evolving on this, but three months feels good to me because you don't want people giving up too quickly. So let's say you say, hey, I'm going to go through this loop. I have, an, you know, I have this thing I want to learn. Uh, we tried this one experiment, and it failed. Well, I hate to say it failed, right? You learned, so it didn't fail. But we tried this experiment. It you know, proved or disproved this hypothesis we had. Well, let's just give up. There's nothing here. And it takes, you know, it takes a couple different, you know, cycles through that. It, it takes like, okay, we're going to do customer interviews. Oh, not just customer interviews. We're going to do 15 to 20 problem interviews. And then we're going to do 15 to 20 solution interviews on our customer segment. Oh, you know what? We're going to take all that great learning and, and the words of the customer. And we're going to create a landing page that conveys that value prop in the words of the customer. And we're going to drive traffic to that through Google ads and Facebook ads and Twitter ads to see if people even are willing to give up, let's say, their email for what we're describing via magic. And let's say people are giving that up. Maybe we can concierge an experience which fakes all the tech that we, go, we could go build, but we want to actually do this manually and learn, is this something people will actually use? And then we'll learn from that and we'll learn patterns and then we can back our way into an experience in software. Now that's a very different way of looking at product development and looking at innovation, right? You're starting with what you want to learn. You're doing all these different kinds of tests using qualitative and quantitative data to inform what you want to do next. And you don't do that in a week. You don't do that in a couple days. You need some time. So the biggest thing that I find with working with teams is like this, you know, they get crushed when they go out and they talk to customers and you almost have to build them back up to, okay, what did we learn? Okay, so what would we do now? Would we go after this other problem? Would we go after this uh, in, in this solution manner? Like there are different ways, um, like people say pivot a lot, but I think the three major types of pivots, pivots are customer problem and solution. So if we do find that another customer has this problem, are you willing to go after that, right? If you find that you're really passionate about a customer but they have a different problem, would you pivot on the problem? And then let's say you find this customer and problem, but the solution in your value prop isn't resonating, are you willing to pivot on that? So what's really interesting to me is that that is um, a systematic way of approaching this and it takes longer than a couple of weeks. So three months is about the right time. By then, you know, you've done a series, you've ran a series of experiments, you've learned, and you're using that to make an investment decision on, okay, whether or not we should really go forward with this or not. Okay, so let me ask about measuring innovation. What are some of the key metrics that any innovation team should be looking at to determine whether or not what they're building actually warrants further investment? 
Yeah. Well, I can say um, what not to use, and that's <laughs> ROI. <laughs> Almost, um, you know, that's a, a really deadly jump to say we're going to measure this in ROI. When I mean, you could trip and fall down and move a button on your cash cow product and make more revenue than this new innovation, right? It, it's just a really terrible measure of progress. Um, probably the only worse measure of progress there would be features, which is even worse than ROI. Um, but the great news is we have all these other metrics now. We have all these services. We're able to measure products and experiences in ways that, I mean, just simply weren't around when I joined my first startup. And things like acquisition, you know, what, uh, how are we acquiring people? Activation, how are they becoming active in our product or service? Retention, are they coming back? What are they coming back for? How long does it take them to come back? Referral. Are they referring their friends? Is it through the product? Is it word of mouth? You know, all this great stuff that gets um, written about, you know, and a lot of it's based on pirate metrics from Dave McClure way back. And, you know, that influenced a lot of Eric's work in Lean Startup as well. If you go back and kind of, you know, Eric and Dave are friends and you can follow that thread. But basically, you know, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, those are great metrics to measure progress on whether or not you're making, you know, you're you're moving the ball forward in a meaningful way because revenue, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't charge for any of this. It doesn't have to be free or freemium, but you know, you need to know, do you have some kind of engine of growth and engine of value here that people are, that, that you're able to fine tune why people are interacting with. And what that also helps is, you know, with management and leadership, give them other metrics to also measure progress versus just saying ROI or did you get these features out the door, um, et cetera. Okay, so David, you advocate doing weekly planning meetings and quarterly pivot, persevere, kill meetings. What are some of the questions that teams or organizations should be asking themselves in these meetings? Yeah, these are interesting in that um, they're somewhat new in the idea of how we have these check-ins with leadership. You know, so so often it's just go heads down for six months or a year or multiple years and then do a big launch. And if you're actually following this process and you're going through, hey, what are our activation numbers? What are our attention numbers? What are our referral numbers? You know, what have we learned? What do we want to try next? You know, that changes the conversation with leadership. So in these meetings, you know, we have our own, you know, um, templates and guides that we use. But basically, it's similar to like an A3 from from Toyota in that, you're walking through what was it that I was trying to learn, what experiments did I, did I run, uh, what was the measures for success, uh, what was the outcome of the experiment, what did we learn overall, and then what do we want to try next. And what typically happens is that you know, if you space these at a quarterly basis, or sometimes even teams do them at a monthly basis depending on your, your company and what you're trying to do, then you can have a series of experiments that you review with leadership and say, this is what we tried, this is what we learned, this is what we want to do next. And um, if you do it well, then it becomes, and you have an overarching strategy and a vision, you know, there's, there's a shared understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. Then leadership starts asking about, oh, well, why did you try this? And oh, why do you want to do that next? And tell me more about this. Like, it's, it's leading with questions versus saying, deliver this product on this feature in this date. 
So it's changing the whole accountability model in organizations. And I've seen really amazing things happen, like um, for, for VPs to come in and say, oh, this is amazing. There's this other part of the organization that you aren't even aware about working on this problem. Let's find a way for you two to work together. And that's just a perspective that maybe the team doesn't even have because they're down at the tactical level kind of working through this daily churn. And, and they, don't, they don't have that perspective that leadership has, or at least good leadership should have. So it really prevents leadership. Um, it's a really different form of operating for them. Uh, and that's where I've been focused a lot recently is helping them understand how do I work with these teams and then how do I get the most out of this. So um, those are some examples. But basically it's reviewing what you did, what you learned, where you want to go, and then inviting that conversation with leadership to see if there are other opportunities in the organization that I, we could pair with. Um, should we pivot, persevere, kill this thing based on these numbers? You know, uh, I notice that projects so often never get killed. They kind of just live on forever like zombies. And this also opens up the opportunity to say, you know what, that was a terrible idea. We, we tested it. Uh, we're going to kill it. However, there's another idea that you, you should be working on. So it also gives this team this whole conversation and framework around failure where, you know, instead of being pivot, you know, like we pivot and we're fired or we, we kill this project and we're fired, it's more, oh, we learned all this great stuff. However, let's just go take all that learning and apply it to something else. Sure. So you, we talked about the Toyota example a little bit earlier. Do you ever get to test out ideas for clients and the feedback comes back and you just know that you've hit a home run and, and that something is going to be huge? Yes, yeah, we do. However, it, sometimes it's um, again. If you think of that three week or that three month time box, sometimes that's not until the third month uh, or even longer. Uh, very rarely is it something like I had this great idea. Let's go test it. Uh, ten out of ten out, ten out of ten people loved it. Let's let's go forward and build. Or a hundred out of a hundred loved it. It very rarely do you say I predict this is going to be big. We go out and just check. Oh yes, it's big. It's huge. Let's go build it. Um, it's more like, oh, this is going to be big. Oh, wait, no one cares about that thing, but they care about this other thing. And then you follow that thread. And you're like, oh, there's a huge opportunity here now that we didn't even know existed. And that's going to be huge. So, um, you know, it's just scientific method. But I think it's important precedent, you know, because this idea of experiment but don't fail is, is pretty dangerous to have in the corporations of, oh, yeah, you can go test, but, you know, just don't, don't fail. And, you know, you have to be willing to be flexible and, and pivot on these, on these different approaches. So, um, yeah, we do see this. However, it's not usually right from the get-go. It's like we tried something, then we learned something else, and then we followed that thread, and then it became something huge. Yeah. Okay. And and you mentioned earlier having to kind of build teams up after they go out and, and get their hopes and dreams crushed. Uh, short of you know being a good corporate cheerleader, are are there ways? You know, I'm sure your teams get used to it, right? But if you're working with companies that are kind of doing it for the first time, you know, I guess how can people get used to kind of getting that feedback that that maybe can be super negative and, and still kind of figuring out a constructive way to bring it back into the build, measure, learn cycle. Yeah, it's very cultural in nature, for example. I mean, we've, we've almost built these organizations in a way where it's very much like command and control, execute. Uh, even, even Agile some way, I find it ends up being very command and control in that you know you basically carve up your, your release into sprints and you just burn down a backlog. And uh, you, you don't have any say into whether or not this thing's valuable or not. So it's really uncomfortable right, to have those conversations to say, 
oh, is this valuable? How do we know? Oh, the VP says it's a good idea. Oh, great. Has, how does he know? Right? Is he assuming the risk that this is valuable? And I think too often, um, you know, with the accountability model that most organizations have, we assume, oh, yeah, he's, he's assuming that risk. And far too often, I find that that risk gets kind of pushed, you know, that accountability gets pushed back down onto the teams when it fails. And it may not have failed because of a lack of execution. It may have failed because there just wasn't a there there. there was, it wasn't valuable. You know, it was just an idea that a VP had, and he was convinced it was a good idea. But we didn't really check, right? We didn't spend enough time, you know, validating the market. For example, you know, in extreme programming, you know, if you were if you were running if you were bur- if you were going through a sprint, and let's say you had a lot of um, uncertainty around something, you might do a spike, right? And a spike is kind of this time boxed event, and you do it just to just uncover like what are we getting into here? Okay, I think this is good. Let's go forward, right? And everyone kind of agrees that you know we time box it. It's a good idea, but I find it. Fascinating that we don't do that on the customer angle and on the valuable angle. Like we don't do a spike saying, you know what, we're just going to check to see is there a addressable market here? Is there a really painful problem here with the customer? Is it worth even building? And I think that's the tragedy of the whole agile movement right now is that we've gotten really good um, at engineering practices and you know, delivering scalable software in this emergent way and using c- continuous deployment. However, at the end of the day, if nobody uses this, then what are we doing? Like, is it even valuable work? And so a lot of this is just pulling those principles up into business and up into product. And that requires some uncomfortable conversations with, are you willing to even test to see if this is a good idea? And if people aren't, then you sort of know what you're dealing with. Um, It may not be the greatest opportunity to kind of apply these methods if no one's willing to test. Um, But if there's an opening there, then it could be something as simple as doing a few interviews going off and doing some prototyping. There are all these great little opportunities that you can, you can find. And I think you know, what I try to do is just find that little opening and say, oh, we have some doubt here. How would we just go check? And, and that gives me a great opportunity to help teach people how to do this stuff, but also help them just feel better about, like we have these really big risky assumptions that nobody talks about and we just treat our backlog like it's this, it was delivered by angels or something. <laughs> and in reality, it's not. There, there are all these risks in there. Now, not everything's a risk. Not every story's a risk. But you might have some really big risky assumptions in your backlog. So why don't we just go test before we you know, create 10 sprints of work and just burn it down? So let me ask about Product Hunt. It's a site uh, or a service that has become hugely popular in the Valley and elsewhere. Do you think that testing ideas can be as simple as putting something on Product Hunt and seeing what happens? I, I love the story of Product Hunt. I know Ryan Hoover. Uh, he, he's a good friend. And it's just amazing what he's done there. Um, however, you have to be willing to compete with the best if you're going to launch on Product Hunt. You know, if you go on there and say you have a half-baked idea and you're just going to throw it on there and see what happens, you're putting it out there in the world with a bunch of hungry entrepreneurs from the Valley and from San Francisco who will out-execute you and just crush you. So I think you have to be very careful of putting something that you feel, hmm, well, I don't know how passionate about this I am, and I don't really know if I'm going to start a startup on this, but I'm going to put it out there and see what happens. You know, you'll see clones of your thing come out and be successful. So you have to be willing to say, 
you know what? I'm at the stage of my startup that I think I have a there there. Like I've done the hard work and I, I think there's something here and I need to dial up acquisition a little more to see, you know, will this thing scale, how, how this resonates. I need to get this beyond like my friends and family and some people I recruited off Craigslist and Mechanical Turk or something. Right. And um, what tends to happen there is that you get this big spike in traffic from Product Hunt. It's actually really great for, for that. And then over time, you're like, well, a lot of these people didn't convert. Like, they didn't come back. They were just checking us out because we were on Product Hunt that day. They're not really our customer. But just that initial spike in that buzz and them telling their friends, you'll notice that you know as your acquisition numbers start coming back down, your activation numbers start coming back up. It's like this, almost like this X. And that becomes really valuable because then you can say, wow, I'm, I'm kind of curating my early adopters here. It's more than just, you know, my friends and family and some people I recruited. Like, there's a real market here. You know, let's, let's run with this. And, and the way Product Hunt works, you know, there's this whole great community and you, you can really curate that. But I would be very hesitant for people just to have an idea and throw it out there and see what happens. You know, so much of it's around what happens after that idea. It's like, how do you take that idea and what's the opportunity? And then can I create an MVP from that? And then from there, can I create a product? And from there, can I create a business? And I, you know, Product Hunt fits into that, but it, it's not super early, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I'm a fan. I, I love what Ryan's trying to do. I love the way he's community building around it. I also love how he's taken Near Isle's um, hooked model and kind of baked it into the product. So there's this whole like trigger reward system you get from you know hunting products and and, and um, commenting and everything and upvoting. It's pretty amazing what he's done. But I think um, people need to be careful how they use it because you know if they're not really sure about <laughs> their commitment level, I, I think it can backfire. Okay, nice. And, and if you'd like to learn more about Near IOL's hook model, listen to episode 56, 57 of the Innovation Engine podcast. Was, we had Near on a few weeks back and it, he was great. Uh, okay, so David, in closing... I want to ask you about a Medium post that you wrote recently. How are successful innovation teams and 80s movie cartoon robot Voltron similar? Oh, yes, Voltron. So Voltron's near and dear to my heart. You know, as a kid of the 80s, I watched Voltron <laughs> a lot growing up. And what fascinated me, about, fascinated me about Voltron is just this essence of teamwork. So they're basically a cross-functional team, right? Like, you can't form Voltron with, like, one arm and a leg and no head. Like, you kind of have to all come together to create Voltron. And I look at cross-functional teams, you know, and if we all have this hero complex and we're all, what's in it for me? a very heroic mode of leadership, you know, it's all about me, and there's not some shared understanding or outcome, then it just doesn't work. You know, you can fill up a, you know, a physical space with beanbag chairs and motivational posters and, and, and give everybody uh, cool-looking machines and tell them to go, like, be a team. But you could tell pretty quickly if they're a team or not, right? If they're really quiet, uh, they're probably not a good team. <laughs> if they're personally attacking each other, they're probably not a good team. Like you have to have this like cross-functional team that's outcome focused that has a healthy level of conflict, but it doesn't escalate into personal conflict. And so I love Voltron because, you know, you don't see people arguing over like who forms the head in Voltron. You know, you don't have people 
uh, in Voltron. You know, there's some conflict, but it's a healthy level, right? And, and at the end, like, they can't really defeat a space alien on their own as these little lions. Like, they kind of always have to come together and form Voltron to beat the alien. So I think that's a great model for, you know, cross-functional teams and innovation teams because you kind of all have to come together. You know, product, design, engineering, marketing, like, you all have to come together to achieve something great. And you're not going to be able to do it on your own. So it's one of the reasons I love Voltron. I think it's a great model. Um, maybe I'll do a Voltron workshop someday. <laughs> nice. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it was great talking with you about organizing for innovation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about David Bland, you can follow him on Twitter at, at David J. Bland. He writes often on Medium at, at David J. Bland, and you can visit his company's website at neo.com. You can also follow Neo on Twitter at, at NeoInnovate. Thanks once again to David Bland for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Golden Krishna, author of the recently released design book, The Best Interface is No Interface, on the podcast to talk about a world without interfaces. We'll discuss why there's an app for that or the five most insidious words in the English language, three principles anyone can follow to create products that don't force us to interact with yet another screen, and why it shouldn't be so hard to understand the difference between UX and UI. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.